it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. I'm Brews News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and thanks to Cryer Malt, this is Beer is a Conversation, our weekly sit-down with the people shaping the beer industry, and through these conversations, we dig a little deeper into the stories behind the business of beer and brewing. The Australian brewing landscape is evolving rapidly, and here we try and make sense of what is happening and better understand the issues shaping the industry. This week's conversation could have covered almost any topic in beer and could easily have been a series in itself. Dermot O'Donnell has been brewing for more than 50 years, since starting at the Courage Brewery in 1967. He has worked in the UK for Bass Charrington, as well as locally at Lion, CUB, CCA, and more recently at St Andrews Beach Brewery in a consultancy role. He was involved in developing a wide range of beers over the years, including Tui's Blue, Tui's Dry, Carlton Mid and Pure Blonde. He also developed Sub-Zero. While we could have done an episode on almost any one of these, or almost any one of those jobs, I was interested in speaking to Dermot about his thoughts about the rise of seltzers. I've often heard from older brewers that one of the things that drove down the bitterness of mainstream beer prior to the advent of craft beers, and to some extent since, was the rise of things such as wine coolers that competed against beers and appealed to people who didn't like the flavour of beer. Given Dermot has been brewing through the 80s in the wine coolers, the late 90s in vodka cruisers and into the current hard seltzer wave, and has developed a few non-beer drinks himself, I thought it would be interesting to hear his thoughts about them and see what a brewer thinks about their impact on beer. It's an interesting conversation about a long career in beer, As I say, there was so much that we could have covered, and it did feel a little like we had to skim over 50 years. So if there's anything that you would like us to dig deeper into, let us know. We can always get Dermot back. In the meantime, enjoy my conversation with Dermot O'Donnell. Dermot O'Donnell, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. G'day, Matt. Nice to be with you. Mate, thank you for joining us. There's a couple of things I wanted to speak to you, but it's been a long uh, time coming that we should have had you on Beer as a Conversation before uh, now. So before we get into the whole thing about, um, you know, the reinvention of seltzers, let's talk a little bit about uh, your background, because you've had, uh, I think, 53 years in brewing uh, this year. That's great. Arithmetic, yeah, exactly on. Um, I started in 1967 with Courage Breweries in Melbourne, and... um, I was their first Australian employee, actually. I was, I was actually hired to um, analyse CUB beers, ironically, as I joined CUB some years later. But uh, So I set up a lab in uh, British Tobacco's um, research labs in, in Raleigh Park in Kensington in New South Wales to, to analyse beer, and that's how I started in the industry. How did you come to be offered that job? Yeah, that's an interesting story. Though, after I left uni, uh, I did biochemistry at uni. I, I actually joined uh, Roundtree's, the uh, the chocolate company, in uh, Campbell Town in um, in Melbourne. Uh, nepotism was the way I got the job. My uncle was the sales director there, so that's a good start. <laughs> but you, 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 a lot of people find this very very hard to understand. But you soon lose the taste for chocolate, and I was doing about. Oh, six or seven 
you know, triangular taste test with chocolate every week and uh, I'd have to do them. <laughs> I was thoroughly pig sick of chocolate. So what, what, what actually happened was I was sort of looking to get out of it and I saw a job advertised in the Australian uh, on, uh, you know, which had just started as a national newspaper and uh, was for a food and beverage chemist. But it was just under a... Um, under a, a sort of a, a box number, but it was in Sydney. So I thought, oh, well, I'm in Melbourne. They'll have to get me up to Sydney to do an interview. And at that stage, the DC-9 had just started flying jets, uh, flying jets from Sydney to Melbourne, you know, and you could get, I don't know if you could get from Sydney to Melbourne quicker then than you can now. It used to only take about 50 minutes. And uh, in fact, it was known as the Flying Cigar because it was a, it was a, it was a very narrow aircraft, but it was a brilliant thing. And I'd never been on a plane before, let alone a jet. So off we went. I wrote to um, to British Tobacco, and uh, as it turned out, and got a, sure enough got a, an interview in Sydney, and um, the rest was history. I was I was employed because I I played uh, I played the interviewer off because I could guess that they were actually. Uh, the the thing the letter came back on British Tobacco's byline, and uh, I could I knew at that stage that British Tobacco were backing the new brewery, which was Courage Breweries in Melbourne, which was a third British Tobacco, a third Courage Barclay and Simmons, and a third local hoteliers. And Courage had selected Victoria as as opposed to they were looking at South Africa at one stage even, but Courage was expanding into Victoria because. More of the Victorian market was free trade than, for example, in Sydney or Queensland. So uh, it was a, a much more potentially fertile market for uh, a new brewery. So that's why Courage selected uh, Victoria. And uh, I was lucky enough to, to start there. And it was a great experience because, you know, you were commissioning a brand new brewery, state-of-the-art brewery, uh, right from the, uh, the ground up. And that's what happened from 1967. And that's how I started. That, that, that's fascinating because I, I think Courage is one of the you know forgotten chapters of Australian brewing. Um, we, we, it, it was obviously a big thing at the time, but it's not much talked about today. Yeah, Courage was a grand enterprise. Um, it, it went wrong for a number of reasons. I mean, we had 90% of the market for about a month in Victoria. But uh, Carlton United was a very, very... Um, durable competitor and, uh, you know, sort of highly uh, revered by the Victorian public, still is to, to some extent, but, um, you know, and very the Victorian public is very proud of it, but the Victorian publicans, the hoteliers, were very, very annoyed with CUB because you've probably heard of Rich Fogarty, who was a notorious bully uh, to the trade and, you know, used to threaten the publicans with all sorts of dire straits if they didn't comply with his uh, increasingly draconian uh, regulations, you know, about payment and and what, what, what indeed they, how they paid um, court to him. So Reg, Reg sort of lost a lot of the uh, business for CUB, or lost a lot of goodwill. Uh, but unfortunately for Courage, um, the hoteliers had sort of reviled Reg was sort of slightly mollified by the fact that he died about six months before Courage, in fact, came on the market. And there was another guy put in charge called Brian Brainy, who was uh, very, very much uh, more uh, cultivated and uh, 
well, <laughs> civilised person than Reg Fogarty was. So anyway, um, Brian sort of calmed the, the publicans down and by the time Courage had hit the market, uh, the, the, the steam and fire had gone out of their, um, their uh, you know, ire at, uh, at CB. So, but nevertheless, you know, the, 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 the public was very, very uh, into it, this new brewery, because this was, you know, people love to talk about breweries, as you know. And uh, so off we went, and we, we did extraordinarily well. Um, but the marketing plan was to basically match. Uh, Carlton Draft was actually first produced, in fact, because Courage was coming onto the market. I mean, all beer back in the, before that, back in the 60s, was just the same, and they just changed the label on the packaging line. So Carlton Draft was actually uh, de- deliberately developed to forestall courage. Um, and, in fact, it was the first true pub beer, you know, for, for Australia, really, I suppose. And um, it was very successful. So courage was, you know, going to match that. Courage was uh, beer was basically... Oh, it, was, it was based on Harp Lager in the UK, which was, you know, brewed by Courage in the UK. And to some extent, it was, um, you know, it was, a, it was a British-style European lager, if you like. But um, it, there was a number of things that conspired against it, though, in the marketplace. Um, first of all, CB had, had changed all their hopping to what we call uh, post-fermentation bittering. That's pre-isomerized hop extract, which sounds awful, but in fact, it's, it, it has its advantages taste-wise. Um, if, you, if you use pre-isomerized hop extract in, in lager beer or in ale, for that matter, you, get, you can get a softer bitterness. It's, it's extremely technical, the reason for this. There's three types of isohumulone and uh, in pre-isomerized hop extract, the cohumulone is minimised, so that is the harsher of the bitterness of the three types of bitterness. And what actually happens then is you can make the beer bitter without it being harsh. So also you get less tannin, of course, because the tannin is not extracted in the uh, in the extraction process. So if you think of a, like a, a young red wine, which is harsh, you know, sort of got a real, you know, that red wine bite. CUB bitterness doesn't have that. And most kettle hop beers do. So if you're not going to make a uh, better beer, bitter beer, better bitter beer, uh, you're better off making it with a pre-isomerized hop extract. Now, you know, this is anathema, of course, to craft brewers, so they don't do it. But it's a very good way of making a nice bitter beer without any uh, of that um, tannin bite or, in fact, the, the, the harsher cohumulone. Considering that we were just starting talking about courage, but one of the things that we wanted to talk about was... Yeah, well, courage was kettle hopped. Mm. So the trouble was that it was too harsh. So after people had had, you know, like six pots... They were getting starting to get this, you know, tannin build up on their tongue, and they go back to CV beers which didn't have it, and it was much better. 
So that was that was probably the first reason why there was a backlash against drinking courage. The second reason was they got a dreadful infection, a lactic acid infection, which made made the beer. There's a dreadful term called a lactic twang, T W A N G, which but the, the organism still exists out there in bubland too. And you know if you don't keep your beer like nice and hygienic, and uh, you'll get it. And it's still out there, the, the same taste. But unfortunately, because the courage beer wasn't moving as fast through the taps as the Carlton beer was, the, the beer became worse. You know, it was exacerbated the problem. So we had to, we had to, I learned a lot about flash pasteurization <laughs> because I was working in the, uh, in the draft beer part of courage. And uh, yeah, we, we fixed it, but there was, there was a, you know, it was too late. The, 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 beer, the beer had lost its reputation by then. But Courage was... They actually then, funnily enough, I wrote a history of uh, Australian brewing from 1930 to 1988, if you've never read it, for the bicentennial um, celebrations. And the thing about Courage was that they were the first brewing to actively market their beer. And that they, they came into Sydney... Uh, we're a very active marketing campaign. I can remember up to this day, actually, beer in um, in Sydney at that time was seventeen or eighteen dollars a case, and overnight, Courage came in with thirteen dollars a case, and they bought themselves a market, and, and they became relatively uh, profitable for a number of years. And in fact, they actually lasted uh, independently until about. Um, 19, uh, I think it was 1981 when CUB took them over. Well, Tooth took them over first, of course, and then CUB took over Tooth in 1983. So, yeah, they lasted till about 84, 85 because they were brewing KB at uh, Broad Meadows where the brewery was until that time and distributing it into um, the Riverina where uh, Tooth were very strong. And uh, that, that was an interesting thing. But the, the most telling uh, reason for the for the failure of courage was uh, it actually happened in, in 1970 uh, when the Courage House magazine came out, which sort of promoted, you know, the Courage Brewery as being the greatest thing since sliced bread. And there was... The, the one-third of the, of the share equity which the hoteliers held uh, and they, they bought the shares at 50 cents, that was the stag uh, share price, uh, the actual uh, share price at that time was oh, it was about a dollar ten, and uh, it had been up to a dollar twenty, I think and then all of a sudden overnight because there was share euphoria, it was the Poseidon days, you before your time, I'd imagine, but, you know, there was sheer uh, mania throughout the, uh, the Australian market. And the shares went up from $1.10 up to about $1.30 overnight. And the publicans could see the writing on the wall. They knew that the beer wasn't selling. So they unloaded, unloaded all their shares. So all of a sudden, you know, from the one-third of the of the share register being uh, held by publicans so that they would have a, an interest in selling the beer. 
all of a sudden, no publicans had any interest at all. So that was <laughs> the beginning of the end. And that's why they had to go into New South Wales uh, to try and, you know, sort of get get some uh, volume through the uh, through the place. Yeah, it was a it was a heady time, heady time. It was a fantastic time. I left, you know, I could see the writing on the wall, and I wanted to go to the UK, so I left uh, and went to the UK in 1970 because at that stage you could get a, it was very expensive to fly uh, to Europe in those days, and I can remember you could get a youth fare um, up to the age of 25. For four hundred dollars, and that was that was cheap. So I went to the UK and um, got a job in the UK with Bass, who were a fantastic company to work for uh, for five years, and uh, then came back and applied to all the Australian brewers, um, including CV. I was on about my sixteenth year by the time Tui's actually came up with an offer of a thousand dollars more per year than actually asked for because they knew I was on the market and they had a guy who was leaving. Uh, he was in charge of research at, at um, Tui's and uh, I took over from him. So that was uh, that was how I got the position there. So I sort of said to CUB, oh, well, thanks, but no thanks. I'll, I'm off to Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, so 15 years later, we had Lion Nathan, of course, and um, I lasted just long enough at Lion Nathan to um, to do Tui's Blue for them, and then uh, they decided I was uh, superfluous to requirements. And that was uh, when I finished up at CUB. That was one of the things I wanted to uh, talk about. You, you did have a lengthy period at Lion, but then also at CUB. But over that time, well, no, it wasn't lengthy. I, I was at Lion. I was I was at Lion for about after they took over about six months. And uh, that was just enough time to get to his blue bedded in before uh, they they had a hit list that line, quite frankly. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to get sued over this, but um, most of the senior management, middle management at line were, or twos were, were um, disposed of in the in the early months after the takeover, and uh, it was it was revolutionary. Managerially, what they did there, and, and ultimately very successful, actually, I'd have to say. But um, in fact, the industrial situation line is miles better because of you know what they did. But it took them a long time to do it. One of the things I was really interested in talking about over the course of your career was the number of new beers you've developed, and you almost introduced the oh. idea when you started talking about the um, pre-isomerized hops and the difference in bitterness that they give for a beer and that the market naturally gravitates towards some of those aspects of the of the flavor of a beer that they don't necessarily get through the branding well i don't, I don't think the uh the consumer would understand and probably would even appreciate it uh, i mean they they drink for the taste experience and uh you know, over the years I developed beers at CUB, I mean, uh, we always wanted to, to when we put a new product out, have what they called a techno hook. Um, do you know what a hook is? The flavour hook? Or, sorry, sorry, I just... You, you no, just... A, hook, a hook is something that you, you can hang your hat on uh, for why you're developing this new product. 
So it's it's a reason to believe. It's what the the consumer has to have a reason to trial a new beer or the new product, right? So the hook is what gets them in to try it. So a hook is cold filtered, a hook is chill filtered, a hook is uh, ice uh, from an ice chamber. Um, you know, you name it. Um, a hook can be something like Great Northern is from Queensland. Um, you know, any any number of things. But during that period, they were usually technologically based because of uh, you know the chill filtration, cold filtration. You know, sort of all these sort of things that that had some sort of technology behind them. So. Uh, that that was that was a fashion going all the way through the uh, the nineties, uh, and it worked to some extent, or to a large extent actually. I mean, CUV, for example, spent one hundred and fifty million dollars uh, on putting technology in to do uh, cold filtration, which was of course uh, sterile filtration, and uh, then sterile filling as well for cold and cold. Uh, Lion, Lion didn't spend anywhere near that. They, they, uh, they, their hook was the ice chamber, you know, where the the beer is 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 partially frozen and that concentrates the flavour and all that sort of thing. So um, they they introduced that technology into Sydney and they had they converted some of their uh, storage cellars into ice chambers where they partially froze it and uh, that. You know, sort of matured it or smoothed the flavour out, and um, yeah, and that was the, the, the techno hook. It's also called a MacGuffin. MacGuffin is a is a character in Alfred Hitchcock movie, who uh, who sort of it's a bit like you know how Alfred Hitchcock appears reading a newspaper or something like the, that. The cameo, yeah. That's part of the MacGuffin thing. It's it's a sort of a uh, it's a slightly mysterious thing that um, consumers can latch onto, you know, and say, "Well, I saw him, you know, reading a newspaper or walking his dog or something like that." So that's—I uh, don't know if you've read—you you, you read a few marketing books. I think it's in marketing books. You know, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, but it's a quite interesting uh, technique. Um, not sure if they're still doing it these days, but um, yeah, it was always something that we uh, we had in mind when we were. We were actually developing a new product, where be it a beer or a, or something like Sub Zero, for example. So, and, and, yeah. and that's what I wanted to, to, to talk about because I, I guess in addition to those hooks that you give, um, whether it's ice filtered or low carb or whatever, we've yeah. also seen a gradual decline in the bitterness of beer over you know two or three generations. Is that? Yeah, yeah, that's that's very interesting to me. Um, Certainly, uh, you know, we, we were making, for example, Stella at bitterness of about 32 when we were doing it at first. And then they, they actually cut the um, Stella, told us to cut the bitterness to 27. And, uh, you know, I can remember when um, I first, I could see um, I could see little creatures coming and we developed a beer called Alpha, of course, uh, at Matilda Bay. Um, or it was called a sail and anchor in those days, which when it was up at, at Sanctuary Cove. And I first did that beer in Melbourne in the pilot plant, and we did it at, uh, you know, a bitterness of about 35, which 
which was the same as uh, Sierra Nevada, of course. And, um, and you know, that was, that was plainly going to be the, uh, the template for little creatures. So we did that. But even then, the, the marketing people said, oh, this is too bitter, you know, so it was too bitter for mainstream drinkers. So it was emasculated back to about 27. I think Brad, actually, to his credit, put it back up again when he, when he was put in charge of Matilda Bay. But um, I, I fear it's probably gone completely now, Alpha. I don't know. But anyway, it was, it was, of course, the Alpha because it was named after Alpha Acid, which is the bitter component of hops. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the mainstream is... You know, of, of your, like Carlton Draft, VB, uh, Fosters, blah, 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 uh, even Forex, um, haven't changed all that much in bitterness. But what you're seeing, of course, is the uh, so-called new age beers like Great Northern and Han Superdry and all those sort of things coming through. And it's, it's, it surprised me, and Cold, Cold, of course, was the first one that came through. Uh, it surprised me that... You know, there, there seems to have been a, a polarisation of the industry. Like, like the mainstream brewers are going low bitterness, new age, and, and, and I think, if I'm not wrong, Great Northern is the biggest selling beer going now mm. in Australia. So um, that's, I suppose, you know, because of Queensland and, and mid strength. But yeah, I mean, I think. Neophyte drinkers, obviously, the bitterness is a challenge to their palate. But then, you, you know, on the other side of the, uh, the equation, you've got the craft brewers, of course, going by IPAs with bitterness up to 70, 80, you know, and all that sort of thing. Um, and I must admit, I'm quite <laughs> I drink beers that are much more bitter now than I used to. And I, I don't know whether it's a degradation of my, uh, my palate, but... Um, <laughs> I certainly enjoy beers with uh, more bitterness, uh, and um, yeah, it's 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 quite quite a, um, a diverse uh, range of beers we've got to try these days. <laughs> it's good stuff, I think. Yeah, well, and at the same time that we've seen the emergence of these contemporary style Great Northern beers, we've also yeah. seen waves of. Um, things that don't quite fit the beer market but uh, run parallel to it. And I think of wine coolers, um, you know, yeah. vodka cruisers, and now more recently, seltzers. And cider, of course. And, and, and cider. Um, but are, are they alternatives to the bitterness of beer or are they just for a non-beer drinking market? What, what's the, your thinking around those various products? You know, we always used to say when I was at CUV, People who drink cider, cider drinkers who don't like beer, uh, beer drinkers who don't like beer. <laughs> so they like the beer occasion, but they don't like the beer taste. You know, the beer bitterness is, is part of it. There's also a, a taste in beer which which women detest. You know that um, you know the, uh, the smell you get on a beer drinker's palate when mm. you haven't had a beer. And for many years, we tried to eliminate that when I was there and um, I think it's something to do with the amino acids uh, that come out of malt and um, certainly that is something that women hate. I guess we're going to get ourselves into a little bit of trouble if we say all women um, given the, the increasing number of women who are drinking beer these days. Yeah but 
I think that's what women who don't like beer don't like. I don't think it's necessarily bitterness, although bitterness, certainly to some women, you've heard of super tasters, of course. Mm. Um, a super taster like will taste, if it's a given level of, of, of bitterness, say X, that a, uh, that a normal taster would taste, a super taster would taste it at an intensity of about 5 to 7X. So it's extraordinarily bitter to them, you know. It's simply because they've got more taste buds than uh, than uh, normal tasters. So yeah, that's part. And like ninety percent of super tasters are women. Uh, don't ask me why. That's just the way it is. And uh, so very few super tasters are men. So they don't they don't get this super intense um, taste of bitterness that that. Uh, some women do. That's part of the reason for it. Um, yeah, bitterness is certainly something to do with it. I think some of the you know, more extreme um, dry hop beers are a bit over the top for, for a lot of people as well. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's scope for, for all drinkers and all uh, breweries and all brewers, I think, to, to find their niche. And um, that's what I think where uh, Stone and Wood have been very clever there. They found the Pacific Ale niche and they, they've, they've owned it. You know, sort of. You got to get a niche and and make a name for it. And that's um, that's you know how you make the money really, make your reputation and then consolidate your, your style and your brand and and uh, own it. It's, but that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question, isn't it? it absolutely. <laughs> what <are> you <laughs> <laughs> Stepping back to you, you were involved in the development of Sub Zero. Talk to it for, for those that don't remember what Sub Zero was, was. Tell us a little bit about you know how that fit into the um, brewing yeah, world. Yeah, that's that's a very that was a very interesting um, development that occurred back in the '94. Uh, it was actually uh, I think uh, launched at that time. Um, it was sort of. During the 80s, the late 80s, of course, wine coolers became very popular. And there was Bartles and Jones and there was California Cooler and there was Island Cooler and there was all these. Of course, the breweries were looking at these and saying, oh, well, you know, they're, they're taking our market. And, um, and indeed they were. So they, they were all looking at making um, what were known as alternatives or malt coolers as well. And we... When I was at Chili's, we were actually trying to develop a, a, a beer cooler at that time uh, to, to compete with the wine coolers. And uh, as, as, as things happened was this in 1987, Bond took over, um, of course, uh, right, uh, Castle Main Chili's and became, you know, the big conglomerate to, to challenge CBD. So... Uh, Bond at that time owned Pittsburgh Brewing Company, which was a brewery in, in Pennsylvania, which not a small brewery, but quite quite a cult product in uh, in uh, in that area called Iron City Beer or IC Beer, and they developed a product called Icy Cooler, which um, was was a, a malt cooler, and so Bond and his henchmen. So I said to, to us at uh, Tui's, well, you know, make Icy Cooler. Don't bother about making anything yourself. So sure enough, we, we made Icy Cooler, and it was, it was quite successful, actually, and, um, and, and extraordinarily profitable. 
because... And that was released in Australia? That was in Sydney. That was okay. Made. Yeah. Um, it, but it, it was originally made in Pittsburgh. And we could have we could have imported it, for that matter, but for some reason we decided to make it in, um, in Sydney. So we made it in Sydney, and that, when I left um, series in 91... I sort of carried the tribal memory of this to CUB, and um, over that period, we, we were, you know, from '91 to through '92, '93, there was a there was a sort of continual beer war, you know, mostly in low alcohol and uh, making low alcohol beers and mid strength beers and everything like that. But there was also a lot of interest in insider, of course, because um, CUB. I'd been challenged by Bulmers uh, and CUB at that time. I'd taken over Cascade, of course, I think in 92 or 3, and they inherited Mercury uh, from from Cascade. So they were concerned about Bulmers, and, and we were trying to develop a, um, a cider that would taste similar to Bulmers, which was very sweet. And... Uh, we, we hadn't been successful in market research in developing a, a cider that would, would uh, be preferred in blind taste tests. So uh, they, there's a sort of a, a, a window of opportunity to launch um, products. Every, you know, mainstream brewers launch products sort of toward the spring so they, they, can, they can carry into the summer, uh, you know, peak season. So we were, we were missing the, the window with the cider. So they said, well, they're panicking. What do we do now? So I'd, I'd already developed this um, Sub-Zero prototype, which was based, funnily enough, on um, on the, what was called a byproduct of Foster's Light manufacture. The Foster's Light was made by vacuum distillation, and the alcohol that came off it was a sort of called the byproduct, which was valuable but we didn't have anything to do with it so uh, they were keen on finding a product that they could put the byproduct into so we developed this quite frankly it was based on zima you know the cause mm-hmm. product which is on sale in america and uh zima was going to to be launched in australia at that time so we we made a a, a prototype um you know, based on Zima analysis, which we knew worked okay. So, uh, and that, we, we took that out of the cupboard because we, we sort of had a, uh, like a, you know, back, what we developed a whole series, a suite of products, and we picked, picked them out, you know, as, as, as time came for launching something. So I said, well, why don't we make a, um, a product, you know, like, because I drink, you know, golf clubs where they drink lemon, lime and bitters a lot. I said, we'll make something that tastes like lemon, lime and bitters uh, and uh, we'll use the byproduct. And, of course, the byproduct uh, was distilled. So we made this well, very, very short uh, time frame, you know, within a couple of months or something like that. And, in fact, the, the ATO tried to trick us uh, in saying, this product con- contains bitters, doesn't it? Because it was lemon lime bitters. And the reason they wanted us to say that was because if you say it contains bitters, it meant it was a beer. But if you said it wasn't, 
spice, it wasn't a beer. And by the way, if it wasn't a beer, what was it? It was it wasn't classified under the uh, under the, the Bottle Food Act, and that meant that it didn't pay excise. So for years and years, from 1994 when it was launched until 2000 when they changed the uh, I think it was 88 I think they they changed the excise act. CB um, and indeed um, Lion launched a product called Vault uh, actually um, paid no excise, and they were incredibly uh, profitable products. You know, you can imagine if you're selling at that time probably 50 bucks a case and absolutely no excise and no GST either, uh, and, and no web tax and no tax at all. <laughs> you're selling it for 50 dollars a case. It was a license to print money. So they were incredibly, uh, incredibly profitable, and they, they were brought to their knees, of course, by Lemon Rusky, as Lemon Rusky was a, uh, a, a sort of product brought out by the, um, the, what, the spirit companies to demonstrate to the to the actual uh, ATO how ridiculous their uh, excise regulations were, and uh, of course Lemon Rusky. The, one, only one percent of the alcohol actually came from uh, the German, from the Rusky vodka. The, the rest of it came from fortified wine, which they paid no tax on. So it was it was to demonstrate to the actual authorities that there, and it became phenomenally successful, <laughs> despite the fact that they didn't really expect much, much from it, and and in fact knocked uh, Sub Zero out of the market. Uh, that was uh, that was. Very interesting exercise in itself. So uh, yeah, that was, uh, and of course, the, the whole situation is still a mess. Excise, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's ridiculous the way it's 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 actually uh, so political. But anyway, there we go. That's uh, but you know, there's there's a lot of um, fallacies about you know the, the RTDs and all that sort of thing. In fact. Both Zima and Sub Zero weren't, weren't very sweet at all. They were only about five percent sugar compared to you know like Coke at twelve percent, and uh, you know a lot of the. Uh, in fact, at one stage we actually um, we actually launched a, a Sub Zero variant called RTD. Have you heard of that? I don't Did recall it. No. No. Well. What Sub-Zero became with the girls out in the nightclubs, it became a sort of an alcoholic mixer. You know, they, they would use the Sub-Zero as the base and they would put raspberry cordial in it or they would put, um, you know, any, any type of cordial, you want to think lime cordial or, uh, or whatever. And, of course, what they were effectively doing was boosting the sugar content up to about 12% from the addition of the cordial. And when we launched uh, RTD at 5% sugar, which uh, we thought, you know, oh, well, it's the same as Sub-Zero, of course, it wasn't the same as the uh, the, the, the cordial-laced uh, uh, product. So we had to, in fact, increase the sugar content to 12% because it didn't taste the same as the uh, Sub-Zero with raspberry cordial that they were making in the, in the bars and pubs. So yeah, that was a very interesting exercise. In fact, but, um, but it, it didn't it didn't fly. In, in fact, at the end, and of course the Sub Zero was uh, defeated uh, eventually by the uh, by 
Lemon Rusty and also by the, the change in exercise regulation. So do you think that the growth of the, the, the new seltzers are a continuation of that product but with a new hook being that it's being marketed as the healthy alcohol? Just like Sub-Zero went into a marketing vacuum, you see, funny enough, Sub-Zero was launched just at the time that Tropicana came out in a Tetra Pak and there was a huge uproar in the, in the media about alcoholic gigs being available in, in Tetra Packs for kids to drink. You know, so the, the wine companies, just because they valued their, their quality, uh, you know, uh, wines much more than, than wine cores, just completely, you know, just went out of the market. And all of a sudden there was a vacuum. There was nothing for the non-beer drinkers to, to drink. So, um, apart from cider, which wasn't all that popular. And anyway, so Sub-Zero and, and Hooper's Hooch and Vault and uh, DNA and Wicked and all those coolers went into that market, uh, it, which was a vacuum because it had been, you know, sort of completely vacated by the wine coolers. And uh, <laughs> that was, that, that was, that's the same thing that is happening now with the Celsius because it's just the same thing, only different. There has to be something to drink for the, um, for the non-beer drinkers. And uh, that just seems to be uh, lately, you know, Celsius, which is the same name for alcoholic soda, which is what Sub-Zero is called. And uh, they, um, they sort of just reinvented it slightly, though, because... They're saying it's unlike the sort of the wine coolers and that um, sugar boosted RTD product I was talking about. The actual seltzers, white core is the, uh, the, the the first product that's you know gone into this particular category. And I think we, has white core just been taken over by Lime? Did I read? Uh, white core has just uh, been imported. Yeah, so they've signed a distribution agreement. Oh, just been imported, not taken over. Yeah, okay. So. Um, yeah, so they they actually um, have a product called, I think it's called White Core Pure, which has got no sugar in it. And it just tastes like alcoholic water. But it's, um, it's virtually like vodka. But the, the thing is that, you know, they they don't use vodka. And, of course, and a lot of the, the new Australian seltzers don't use vodka either because it's, um, you know, Particularly Quincy's, for example, is made from, I, th- I believe it's made from a fermented uh, uh, ice syrup. So that qualifies it as a beer because rice is, is a grain and beer is made from a grain. Plus, uh, you're not allowed to have less than, I think, 5 ppm of bitterness in it. So, But you can't taste 5, 5 ppm of bitterness, so you can make you know, a product which qualifies as a beer as, a, as opposed to an RTD, which you pay like 70 or $80 per litre of you know, excise, but if it's a beer, it's only about $40 per litre, you know. So it's double, double the excise, and in fact, you know, it makes it much, much more expensive if, you, if you're not making it as a beer. But Quincy's is made as a beer um, and taxed as a beer. Whereas something like... Um, the St. Andrew's product is, is actually made from fermented sugar, 
which uh, is the same as how Sub-Zero was made and is actually classified as an RTD, so it's paying a higher rate of excise. And it, it makes a big difference to the price, actually. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of technology involved in, in the product. And, um, you know, we decolorising them, for example, there was a lot of uh, carbon filtration uh, was, was used in the early stages with um, Sub-Zero. So, uh, I don't know if you know about activated carbon, but that, that actually removes colour. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's lots of tricks and tricks of the trade, as it were. So as you look back over the period of the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, through to what we're seeing now, is it a case of the, the more things change, the more they stay the same? Is it a continuation of the same thing? How do you view the, 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 the trends that we're seeing now compared to how, they've, how they have been in the past? Gee, if I only knew the answer to that, Matt, I'd be a rich man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, mate. Yeah, I, I, there's, there's a... There's a consumer there, and the you know the breakdown of the consumers is is becoming more diverse as time goes on because you know more products are being invented and uh, people are becoming more curious, I suppose, and more certainly more promiscuous brand wise, and uh, they're certainly more curious about flavour, uh, you know, sort of experiences. So. Yeah, I mean, they, they want something different. And, you know, alcoholic beverages are not cheap in Australia. They're a lot more expensive than they are in, you know, the United States or even Germany, for example. So uh, people are paying top dollar. They, they're, they're expecting, expecting an experience. And I think that's why you're seeing such a, such a you know, a, an acceptance of the craft beer market and a, an explosion of the number of breweries in Australia, you know, it's amazing to me, you know, what um, what people are looking for. But um, you know, sours. I, I I don't like sours personally, but they're certainly a style uh, that um, is, is you know sort of come in. And some of the brewery suppliers like Bentani are supplying purees, hand over fist to make you know, apricot sours and watermelon sours. And in America, for example, the sours though. An incredible way of adding value. A bottle of beer that costs, say, two dollars in the states. You know, you make a sour the same beer; they can charge twenty dollars for it. You know, so it's it's an amazing way of adding value uh, to to a product, and uh, that's that's got to be good. It's a bit like the butcher shop, isn't it? He's got to make his uh, the, the 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 product already done up into shaslicks or something. Yeah, so it's a, it's a um, it's a changing market, and it's because the consumers are changing. But I think I think beer is obviously on a decline overall, and it will continue to decline. I think, unfortunately, uh, much more as I like it. But um, I sort of uh, you know I'm disappointed with the uh, mainstream beers these days because they are so bland, really. But aren't they chasing the same market that you know, brewers have always been chasing? You know, going back to the days that CUB, you know, made a a, a sort of cleaner um, bitterness um, than courage. Well, they're chasing the same market, but the, the market is diminishing. Uh, you know, because um, of the diversity of people's tastes, and 
you know, I can remember, the, the, I think the peak uh, beer consumption was 1977 when it was about 130 litres per person per annum of beer was being consumed. We're now down to about 70, or maybe even less. I, th- I think it's still up in the 130s in Northern Territory, thank God <laughs> But, it, but <laughs> it, is that because we're drinking less? You know, we're not sitting down and sitting, you know, drinking half a carton the way I remember... Oh people drinking in the 70s i'm sure and drink driving of course is is uh is, has done that and also healthy lifestyle you know i mean you only have to look at pure blonde uh that was that was sold virtually on a, on a um, very soft launch based on health uh, and the same goes with uh, white core and the same goes with celsius you know people are looking for lower calories they're looking for um to some extent, uh, they're looking for uh, healthy beverages. Even I, mean, I think one of the hasn't somebody recently one of the craft brewers been lambasted in the press for um, saying that there's um, there's vitamins or something, or uh, or you can, you can. I think there was actually a gin maker, but yeah, it, it, there. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, I can remember Cooper's. Do you remember Cooper's? Um, drink your greens. Yes, yes. <laughs> that had to be that had to be withdrawn from the market. <laughs> Dermot O'Donnell, thank you very much for uh, sort of talking to us about the evolution of beer over over you know, your career in uh, in making it. No worries, and we're still making new ones. So if anybody's interested in contacting me, my company name is O'Donnell Brewing, and I'm sure Matt will put you in touch with me. Well, we'll put a link into the show notes. Okay, bye bye. Thanks, mate. And that was Dermot O'Donnell, and he is still consulting. So if you're a brewer that's interested in having a bit of a chat to someone who's got a long history, and particularly he has recently developed alcoholic ciders, maybe Dermot is the man to speak to. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Cryo Malt. With over 25 years in the field, Cryo Malt is dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. Your premium brewing partner and proud sponsors of Brews News Week. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. 